Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Name Three Songs. I'm Sarah Fagan. I'm Jenna Million, and this is a podcast where we challenge sexism in the music industry and empower fangirls. Because let's be honest, fangirls knew about that band way before you did. And if you stick around long enough, we'll also let you in on some new music the girls are already crazy about. So Sarah, what are we talking about today? Today, we are giving context to every episode we've ever recorded. (laughs) What do you mean? Wait. For those of you listening who have no idea what that means, please explain. So we're talking about tabloid culture and we're talking about how it exists and why it's terrible, but why we can't look away, but also why even though it is terrible, it's still kind of somewhat been necessary for the time that it was at its height, which is what we talk about a lot, which is like the late 90s, early 2000s. A lot of the music and pop culture stuff that a lot of us grew up on because it was prior to the internet having a life of its own it was prior to these celebrities being able to have their own voice and kind of make their own rules and so it very much like we talked about in the Spice Girls episode was kind of like a I'll scratch your back you'll scratch mine but also reaching to this point of the tabloids realizing that they had more power than the celebrities did so the celebrities just having to put up with it so we're gonna look into this today and the thing is you know the tabloid culture is not just relevant to the 90s and the 2000s because this affects everything we're going through today. Like this influences literally how women are viewed and how men are viewed in the media and it influences how social media evolved. We're going to get into all of it, but it is truly crazy how interconnected all of this stuff is. So I'm really excited for this episode because it's going to be a great learning opportunity for all of us involved. Yes. It was so interesting doing research for this because as somebody who's grown up with an intense love for media and magazines and just pop culture consumption, it's just, it's just really interesting because we know that the two powerhouses in American kind of pop culture tabloidy but like celebrities still talk to them culture is like Us Weekly and then People with people having a closer relationship with the A-listers and us being like a little lower down and then we also have things like the National Enquirer and like Inquisitor and those sorts of things that publish crazy shit all the time and then when we look over at the UK which we talk about quite a lot because these sites also have offices in America, but also post about things happening in America. We have like the Daily Mail and the Sun, the Mirror, the Star, all of these publications that started their lives as newspapers and have moved over to the digital age because of it. And also not to mention sites like Perez Hilton, which really changed everything and single-handedly ruined careers (laughs) for lots of people. And just the judgment that people had about them because Perez went on Microsoft Paint and painted circles around people. It is truly crazy how much power that man had. And I I mean, it's not just him. There are other men in history 
Piers Morgan, <laughs> cough, cough, who had a lot of power, who maybe shouldn't have had so much power. And it's just crazy how it like changed the world, <laughs> changed the world, literally. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's interesting in, in the Perez Hilton discourse of it all, because he kind of became irrelevant for a little bit. And then people started paying attention to him again. And he's tried to kind of apologize, but not really. And it's just weird watching somebody try to create a redemption arc when there is no possible thing to cling on to for a redemption because he was the same age maybe a little bit older than like Lindsay, Brittany, those sorts of people. He wasn't like this older man. Like he was growing up with these people compared to a lot of these other journalists who have written questionable articles. So I feel like when you grow up in the generation that you're judging, you should you probably are aware of like what's actually going on. Perez Hilton was basically Gossip Girl, but like <laughs> not undercover. Oh my God, literally. It was like he wished that they were his peers, but they yes. weren't his peers. And therefore he was like, I must take them down. And then in doing so, he kind of, in some regard, became a peer. Yeah. yeah. But still nobody <laughs> liked him. So who won really? No one. So I tried my best to find some genuine historical context for you guys so that we can rewind and give you some education on the history of tabloids. But because tabloids have two different meanings, which is like the actual size of the newspaper that's being put out and what we think of when we think of tabloids, which is just gossip rags, there's more like oh, a tabloid was this specific size newspaper that was <laughs> that was put out, blah, blah, blah. So like, there's not as much educational information as I thought that there would be. People should get on that. But tabloid culture essentially started in England, which I feel like <laughs> it's really funny because when I lived in England and I would have family or friends come visit me over in England and they discover just how unhinged the British public is, they're f- fully shocked Because there's this misconception in America that British people are very prim and proper and kind of prudish about a lot of things. But obviously, as any person who's ever been to England or lives in England knows, like after 8 p.m., there are no rules or on the early morning commute. There are no rules. (laughs) Yeah, you have naked people on the TV. You have every curse word in the book on the TV and then you wake up in the morning and you're on your early morning commute and you accidentally pick up a Daily Mail instead of an evening standard. And next thing you know, there's a nude model on the third page of the newspaper. Well, that would be the sun, actually. I don't think the Daily Mail has page three girls. Truly, truly, truly wild. Truly insane. And so it was no shock to find out that the mirror was the first official tabloid paper because obviously the Daily Mail kind of transitioned into more crazed headlines, but the mirror existed specifically to write stories about crime, gossip, and sports. And then later on would start adding photos to their paper. And for those of you also who don't know, since I just mentioned page three girls, up until 2015, British newspapers, specifically The Sun, I'm not sure which other ones had this, would have on page three a full-on nude like Playboy centerfold model on the third page of the newspaper. And sometimes they would interview her, but usually it was for gawking. And then in 2015, that became something that they couldn't do anymore. But in order for there to be a loophole for this, they just started having bikini-clad people on these pages. (laughs) Um, Until 2015. Yep, until 2015. Oh my god. That is so, I can't, that is so wild. I can't believe that. So the objectification of women has been strong. (laughs) It's alive and well, as we all know. 
it's just really interesting. But the the other thing that I did learn from this, and it was something that I knew but didn't know what it meant, was that in order to differentiate between the types of newspapers you were picking up on your Monday morning commute, the tabloids, which were basically giving you a warning, like, this might not be fully factual information that you're reading. Their front page would, it, at the top, their, like, logo and everything would usually be in red to signify that they were, in fact, a tabloid and not just a normal newspaper. And so that is interesting because there are newspapers in America that would be referred to as tabloids because of what I stated before, the size of said newspaper. But when we think of these gossip rag tabloids, we think of those magazines that are on the checkout counter at grocery stores. Yeah. We just have these horribly like unflattering photos of people, ridiculous headlines. So I'm talking like, okay, Star, Us Weekly, National Enquirer, People Magazine, but In Touch. In Touch was the one that I used to see all the time. And they used to have these crazy photos of just like women on the beach in like weird positions that made them not look good and like crazy headlines. I just remember growing up, it was a lot of like Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes stuff going on when I was growing up and just Britney Spears and all those people on there. And it was just like these crazy headlines. And I just remember every day, like every time we go to the grocery store, it's like a new divorce or affair is in the works or whatever. And almost never did that actually happen. But it was crazy. And I feel like you guys know that I have a very strong history with caring about this stuff. But Jenna, we have no idea, even personally. I'm like, what was your relationship with this? So do you remember, do you have any visceral memories of you and tabloid culture or you having any interest in this? I don't ever remember buying or reading them, Hmm. but... I do very vividly remember them at the grocery store and they do still exist to this day. But yeah. I think when I was younger, because it's right when you're in the checkout lane. So it's right yeah. there. And I think that's why, too, because people are like, oh, what's this headline? And then they want to like grab it and read more. But being a kid, I just remember it was like always pictures of people in like bikinis or like their bathing suits, like always people at the beach, both men and women talking about bodies talking like body shaming them essentially either for being too thin or not thin enough and then pregnancies or affairs and divorce like marriage things like you said like those were the three themes was bathing suits pregnancy and marriage (laughs) but I don't have much of a relationship with like tabloids beyond that Mm -hmm. and I mean still to this day like you go to the grocery store and they're still there and you still see them every time and now I like know better to like not even really bother to pay attention but I think as a kid I was more just like what is going on what is this yeah did you ever have a relationship with even just normal magazine culture outside of music stuff I used to buy 17 magazine all the time when I was a kid or ask my mom to buy it for me When I was like 13, right? Because it's called Seventeen Magazine. And like some parents, I remember my friend, like her mom was like, I'm not buying Seventeen for my kid because it's, it's for 17 year olds, you know, like there's, there's some content there's a little too mature, but they're always marketing to the younger audience. So really it is like nobody who's 17 reads 17 magazine. Like it was always the 13 and 14 year olds. I mean, now it's a bit different with online reading, but the magazine itself, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think when I was like 10, my, I, I had a subscription to this like Disney mini zine thing and like Jesse McCartney was on the cover a lot (laughs) and then like every time we would go to the grocery store I would get a J14 or a Tiger Beat I would always get one of those so I think I was just always interested 
And it's just funny because those magazines were always so sickly sweet and so nice about everything. And there was maybe like on the last page of the book, people would send in their real life stories about whatever teen problem they're going through. But whenever they talk about celebrities, it was never salacious or mean or anything. It was always very cute. And even like I worked at J14 for a little while and it was so crazy going to work somewhere that was part of why I was so intrigued by magazine culture because they truly were just like, everything we do has to be nice. <laughs> and I was like, this mm. is this is nice that this still exists. Because even the jump from J14 to like 17 or like Cosmo Girl or any of those magazines that were around at that time, once you get to like 17 or those more like... They think that they're catering to older teens, but it's usually preteens reading them. The language starts to change and it's like how to get boys to like you or like why boys don't like you or what to dress at the beach this summer. And it's still not necessarily bullying, but it starts to the the verbiage starts to change. And then when you move up to reading magazines like Cosmopolitan or In Style, you start to see language that we get mad about tabloid culture using being regurgitated in a different way where they think that they're getting away with it but they're not really and so I think that like when we are having these conversations about tabloids and things like the Daily Mail and the Sun and the way that they turned everything nefarious made everything evil no matter what was going on just because we weren't having open conversations about mental health and we weren't acknowledging that people go through shit and that people in their late teens are going to go out and party. They're going to sneak into bars or do whatever they're doing. You know, it's not that crazy that these people were doing these things because not famous people are doing these things. Yeah. But then you look at these magazines that are held to a higher standard, have more journalistic integrity and they still have these essentially clickbait headlines on the outside of the book. So you go and you pick them up and it's like how Jessica Simpson lost 15 pounds in two weeks. And these things that are doing it where they're trying to act like they're celebrating them, but they're still shaming them. And so it's just the same thought, just in different fonts. <laughs> I think it's a combination of the sensationalized things of like what's going to grab people's attention the most, like what's mm -hmm. clickable content, and in this case, headlines, tabloid headlines. And then the other half of it being the general culture that we're living in. And we're going to get into this today. Now people are recognizing, oh, maybe the way we talked about Britney in 2007 wasn't so nice. But at the mm -hmm. time, everyone was doing it very loudly and nobody was standing up for Britney. And so it's yeah. both like the mentality of the culture as we evolve and get better at talking about mental health and like body image. And also to this day, we still have sensationalized headlines and we still have clickbait headlines. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's very interesting that now that we are discussing this stuff, people are like, oh, at the time I did kind of question it. And something that I want us to look at a little bit before we go even more into just the balls to the wall tabloid culture and gossip magazine ideas is this idea of these women's magazines that think that they're catering to women when they're still, even to this day, really catering towards the male gaze that even women have within themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Guys, buckle in. Get ready for this. So we found an article titled, Women's Magazines Objectify Women Just As Much As Men's Magazines Do. This was written in 2013 in The Atlantic by Noah Berlatsky. And they point out that 
Men's magazines are mostly based on heavily eroticized images of women, but also so are women's magazines. When I read that line in this article, it's just one of those things that's so obvious, but seeing it in writing, you're like, ooh. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. It's like we've all been thinking about this and like now somebody's calling it out and it it kind of spins the perspective of we've been saying this on the podcast of like all this stuff is always from the male perspective and now someone's reaffirming what we've been saying. It's kind of cool. Yeah, literally. Because Noah goes on to question like why do Esquire and Vogue often look like they're selling the same gendered things when in theory they're selling to different gendered people? And I think it is interesting because I feel like a lot of us have this mindset of we're not doing anything for men. We don't put makeup on for men. We don't dress for men. We don't do this for men. But like in all honesty, sometimes we do maybe like not all the time because I feel like most of the time when you wear something cute, you're like, I want a 15 year old girl to whisper to her friend that I look cool when I walk (laughs) past them. Like that is everybody's hopes and dreams, you know? So it, it is this interesting thing where The patriarchy is so strong in our like internalized biases of things that we don't even realize sometimes. And then when you look at these magazines and you put them next to each other and you're trying to compare apples to apples, you're like, ah, fuck. (laughs) Yeah, it's like these spot the difference games are getting a little harder. (laughs) So Noah goes on to write the reason images in men's magazines often look like images in women's magazines is that despite different audiences, they are both doing more or less the same thing. They're making women sexual objects and serving them up to satisfy or more likely to provoke the desires of their readers. Which is just ridiculous. The idea that women have to be viewed as sexual objects by everybody, like all come together and be like, ah, yes, women are objects we have sex with and have sexual desires about. Like, it's so messed up. And like, he goes on to talk about Esquire magazine, which I think is one of the more respected men's magazines. But basically, he was saying that the editor of Esquire himself at the time of this publication, so this was 2013, was saying that Esquire is telling men that female bodies are objects to be used for their enjoyment. And this is a pretty common message. And basically, like, Noah brings home that men are told day in and day out that women exist specifically for their erotic pleasure. And when these magazines premise these women in scantily clad outfits or are asking them questions to make them seem like, quote unquote, one of the boys, which I feel like is very common in these articles. They'll be like, oh, like, do you eat chicken wings? Like, do you go to the bar and watch the football? So Noah goes on to write, in most ways, in most of the culture, women are told that their gazes and their pleasures are secondary. In women's magazines, though, those gazes and those pleasures are paramount. Women get to be in a position of power, looking at and consuming bodies displayed expressly for them. Such a fantasy of empowerment could perhaps be seen as feminine with a major caveat. In women's magazines, women can be onlookers, but only if they also and simultaneously imagine themselves as the looked at. Yeah, and this is what's so interesting. These women's magazines are kind of sexualizing women in like this feminine way that a lot of women would like to be sexualized, but they're still doing it. And in comparison with Maxim, where it very much is pandering to this male idea of I'm not like other girls idea. It's interesting because when you look at GQ or Esquire in specific, who 
kind of take themselves more seriously as a journalistic entity, as well as like, oh, we're classier than magazines like FHM or Maxim or Playboy even. Once you take yourself too seriously as a men's magazine, you kind of, (laughs) I don't know, it's still a bit much. And so there was also this one other article that we're going to like circle back to later from the Washington Post by Jessica M. Goldstein, which was written this year, which was called Reading the Story Today Makes Me Cringe, Female Stars in the Media Machine of the Early 2000s. And in this, she's talking about men's magazines in the early 2000s. And so she's acknowledging how in 2013, when Britney was featured in Esquire, she was still pantsless on the cover. And then three years later, when Christina Aguilera is on GQ, she's topless. And so these magazines who are thinking of themselves as classier or like with more journalistic integrity than these specific pandering to the male gaze magazines, these classier magazines are still doing the exact same thing. And she spoke with this woman named Vanessa Grigoriadis, who was a contributing editor at Rolling Stone in the early 2000s. And so what she said was that basically what these magazines were doing is that they would send male writers to go interview these women. And it was basically, you're going and you're going to go flirt with these female celebrities and see if the female celebrity will take the bait. And that way you can continue to make them into like a trope or an idea of just this girl who will flirt and (laughs) pander to men because that's what they're taught to do. I've never felt more than like reading these articles. I've never felt more that we're living in a man's world. Like we really, we really are. And it's proof right here in the media. If you break it down, it's like, I hate to be a bit negative, but it's just like women can never win because the narrative has always been controlled by men. It's men who are like, you're a sexual object. And if you're a woman, You also have to look at women in a sexual way, or at least in a sexy nature, I'll say. And it's like this perpetual cycle. And we talked about this in our pop stars episode, right? It's like women are being sexualized. Then they like want to lean into the sexy to like own it themselves. And then they're like, no, that was too much. I didn't like it. I'm taking it back to like a level of sexy I want to be. And then young girls are growing up and seeing this. And it's just the cycle continues and continues and continues. And I don't think the cycle is ever going to (laughs) end. And like the sexual objectification versus empowerment conversation. It's like, yes, we can say women can empower themselves, but we're still still empowering ourselves within a patriarchy. So at the end of the day, like somebody's always going to get erotic pleasure out of it, whether or not you're doing it for them. Yeah. I mean, like Noah said it really well in this Atlantic article. He wrote in women's magazines, women can be the lookers, but only if they also and simultaneously imagine themselves as looked at, which I think really just hits the nail on the head. It's that thing of seeing women sexualized in this way you have to know that that could be you Mm -hmm. like anywhere you go that could be you and it's never more apparent than when you go out to the freaking club man going out to the clubs you get cat called you get called so many things men just blatantly come up to you and like ask you ridiculous things and i hate going out for this reason anymore but i mean like we've all experienced it anywhere at any time that could be you that could be you that's being sexualized by somebody else even if you're fully clothed like no matter what you're wearing that's what it is at the end of the day 
Yeah, 100%. And it's like, it's so frustrating that every time it starts to feel like women are moving towards equality to some degree, something comes around the corner and they're like, ha you thought. Like, exactly. America just keeps going backwards in a lot of ways, whereas, like, the women that live in America and have no power are trying to move forwards. Every person that has power in the media, in politics, what have you, is trying to take that power away from us and is like, have you seen The Handmaid's Tale? That looks fucking great and it's just like a constant thing of just like these horrible ideas that have gone on in the tabloids or in media as in like television or movies or all these things that we think will never happen or we think we're moving away from the next day you wake up and the world's just like (laughs) we're not moving away from anything and that's the thing is it's like these tabloids still exist you still go to the grocery store as we already said and they're still on the checkout counter the daily mail is still thriving the sun is still thriving all of these places are still thriving and Celebrities have gotten smarter with social media. There's more ability for them to like have more control over the narrative, which we're going to get into a bit more towards the end of this episode. But it's like these tabloids still exist. And while they're not doing the same things or like they don't have the access or the ability to write the same ridiculous stuff that they were writing at the height of this in the early 2000s, they're still trying their hardest to do that. And they're still trying their hardest to bring down women. And so it's like that article that we were referencing the other week with the Spice Girls episode, which was in time with Alison Yarrow, where she had this article called How the 90s Tricked Women into Thinking They'd Gain Gender Equality. She's discussing how during this time, women were having more autonomy like over their bodies and over how they were viewed and all this stuff. But at the same time, the tabloids were taking them down a peg every single chance that they got. They still just weren't having any equal rights whatsoever, but they were convincing themselves that they were and therefore were acting like it. So they were being just more confident and more like they were just going out with the idea of like, I don't need no man and I can do what I want, which is totally respectable and fine. But the world was like, but you do. You do need all this stuff and we're going to continue to make you feel shit every single day whenever possible. Well, I think it it's also just like we always think you know, every five years, every 10 years, it's so much easier for us to look back and reflect on whether or not things had really progressed. And while we are making progress, I already said this, we live in a patriarchy. There's only so much progress we can make as long as there's people on the other side who don't want women to have rights, period. And the other thing is like talking about like sexualization, especially in the media, this has been happening for so long and it's so ingrained in us that it's going to take a lot of people, a lot of journalists, a lot of editors, a lot of people who are at the tops of these publications to enact change. Mm -hmm. It's not one journalist. Every journalist has a responsibility, but systemic change comes from the top. But you have to be willing to reimagine it and put in the work to get there because hashtag me too, it just brings the stories to light. But if nobody does anything about the system and the processes, nothing is going to change. Me too is just going to happen all over again. Yeah. And I mean, like, it wasn't until 2019 that the UK made taking photos up women's skirts illegal. So the fact that it took until 2019 and that paparazzi have been making bank off of headlines of Britney goes out without underwear on. Ooh, Paris Hilton caught not wearing undies. Or like Lindsay Lohan and everybody talking about Lindsay Lohan's fire crotch for like the early 2000s. The fact that they took until 2019, like, I don't even know if the US has any laws about upskirting. And so it's just like so crazy 
that it took this long to make something that was causing so many women pain and the issues to make that illegal. And then in the US, we're still seeing all these nonsense Republican women trying to take away women's rights of autonomy over their fucking uterus. So it's just crazy that, again, every chance we get, we're trying to make excuses for why it's okay to allow women to just be objects for people to have control over. And this is why these things aren't individual. These things aren't unique to the music industry or to the media. It's all reflective of itself. It's all reflective of the larger culture. And so with that all being said, we do need to look at tabloid culture and how in the early 2000s, it fueled a nation, but not even just America. It was also fueling the UK. Every country had this tabloid era that was just like taking over and and no one was safe like if you were famous for five days or you were famous for five years if you did something questionable you were in the tabloids and questionable meaning doing something that an old man sitting at the pub would like tut his tongue at you about so nothing really that ridiculous like obviously of course there were the fair amount of scandals but most of this was just people being teenagers who have money and being able to go exist in the world and everybody's eyes were on them because humans are voyeuristic people. That's just kind of in our nature to be interested. Like you don't know somebody and you hear somebody having a fight on a phone and you're like, suddenly my plans are changed and I am following them down the street. (laughs) And they were roommates. I mean, for those of you on TikTok, it's like how TikTok for a whole fucking week was obsessed with that guy who wasn't excited to see his girlfriend show up to visit him in college. It's just part of human nature. (laughs) We love we love drama. And most of the time it's all in good fun. But some of the time it really fucks up people's lives. But so as I mentioned earlier, there was this article in The Washington Post this year written by Jessica M. Goldstein called Reading the Story Today Makes Me Cringe female stars and the media machine of the early 2000s. And she starts this article talking about how in 2004, when Lindsay Lohan turned 18, this was a date that men had been obsessing over. And this is something that we've talked about in past episodes in multiple ones. And so it's like people on internet forums, radio jockeys, people who write magazines are literally were having like countdowns until this girl was going to turn legally into a woman. And she writes... And this is what just completely threw me because it's like seeing it in writing makes it feel so much more insane and ridiculous. But basically what she's saying is that all these men couldn't wait for this person to become of legal age. And she goes, they couldn't wait until it would be legal to do what they were obviously already doing. Fantasizing about having sex with a teenager who first found fame as a child in Disney's remake of The Parent Trap. And it's like once you contextualize this of like the of the American people, the world, were introduced to Lindsay Lohan as a cute, fresh faced child in the fucking parent trap. And they're just sitting waiting to be like, ah, finally, I can talk publicly about how great her tits are. And it's like, you knew her before she was a person. Yeah, it's very disturbing. And I mean, same thing goes for Disney stars. Even Britney was on Mickey Mouse Club. She was on Star Search. She was around and like probably people weren't paying attention to her in that regard until, you know, she came out with her debut music. But she was like 16, 17. That's still under the age of consent in most states. And like most of America and they're already sexualizing her. And we've talked about this a lot, but it's, it's that same thing of like, but like they look old enough, but like 
but they aren't. So literally stop. It's disgusting. And I mean, Billie Eilish too. We talked about this. People waiting for her to like uncover her body for people to see. Yeah. And I mean, Jessica calls into something that we on this podcast have done, which is go and look at, go and look up old profiles of female celebrities. And like, you won't find a single one that if it was published today would not be ripped to shreds. As I've said in my favorite Britney Spears articles, they're talking about her ample bosom (laughs) and and her honey Honey thighs. thighs. (laughs) Yes. How could we forget? (laughs) But the thing is, is it's like, while they're not being like, oh, her shirt was so tight that I could tell how big her tits were, they're saying it in like more eloquent ways today. Like in our Lana Del Rey episode, when we were talking about the way in which Lana's been described in interviews, they're always sexualizing somebody but like using more imaginative words now yeah when doing so and so it's just interesting of her being like oh they would be ripped to shreds and it's like this still exists but people are just being smarter about the verbiage but she goes on to say that 20 years ago a leering tone was the industry norm whether the subjects were actresses, models, reality stars, or one of the pop's ascending blondes. Nobody was safe. Everybody was going to be sexualized, whether that was with their permission or not. And this was going on both in these quote-unquote reputable magazines, as well as these trash rags that people would read, like hiding them behind paper bags, you know? Like being embarrassed that they're reading In Touch or Us Weekly or what have you, but it's like, you're still fucking reading it, and you're still giving money to these people who are writing these salacious articles about these people. And... The other thing is she goes on to point out that while Britney and many of the pop stars of this time were being sexualized in this way, then we have NSYNC as an example who's like appearing in turtlenecks. And if a male was to talk about having sex, it was a cause for celebration. But when a woman did it, it was scandalous. And we saw this too with Justin and Britney thing of when they broke up, they went and asked Justin if they had slept together and he like spilled the beans. And everyone was like, ah, oh, so cool. And then everyone's like, we knew Britney was a slut. Like, yeah. They're like the same age. Why are you treating them differently though? Yeah. And I mean, this is just what this frustrating thing is, is again, women are treated one way, men are treated another, and the ways in which they're treated are so vastly separated that there's no fair playing field whatsoever. I feel like we know everybody's aware that we are in a patriarchal society. Even back then, we were aware that that was a thing. And so you know that men and women are going to be treated differently, but just how differently they are treated, I want to say blows my mind, but it doesn't. It's just frustrating and makes me so angry. And so Jessica, in this article... She also makes the same point that Allison made in that Time article, which is that from one vantage point, this era is an encouraging period for women and a real you-go-girl time in entertainment. You have girl groups like TLC and Destiny's Child having success. You have movies like Bennett Lake Beckham, Legally Blonde, TV shows like Buffy and Alias, where you have all these women really like girl power being shown in all intensive purposes, where you're like, oh, these women led TV shows where the women are strong, these women led movies where these women are strong, or even these girl groups who are doing something that we'd never seen before up until that time. But also, Jessica points out that in this era, you also have Girls Gone Wild and MTV Spring Break. What t-shirt contests are a really big thing and terms like slut shaming, victim blaming, and even revenge porn don't even exist. Nobody is talking about this stuff. And when things are put out against women's will, like One Night in Paris, Paris Hilton's infamous sex tape, there's no recourse for these women. They just kind of have to grin and bear it and either use it to their advantage or just 
disappear and uh, hope people forget about it. Well, I think to what you were saying earlier, if it's like, how did nobody at the time think this was messed up? And it's like, maybe there was something in the back of their head that was like, this feels icky, but they didn't have the words to put it together. They didn't have the education and the context yeah. and the knowledge that we have now. And like, you think of this too, when we talk about gender fluidity and the non-binary spectrum, there were, you know, rock stars that we talked about who were bisexual or like, they probably would have been a non-binary person or whatever else at the time, but they didn't have the language to like iterate that and like express themselves in that way. And I feel like this is kind of similar of our culture had not evolved to a point where we could call out slut shaming. So nobody, nobody knew that it was a thing. It was just like, maybe it's like, I hate that they do this, but like you don't have a word for it. And so it's like, it's hard to call it out when it's not, a specific and understood part of your vocabulary yeah no definitely i think that like not having the right verbiage or the right education around certain things definitely played a huge part in what these tabloids were able to get away with and what these women had to deal with and i mean like this is a point that i made earlier but i think jessica wrote this really well so i'm just going to read it verbatim but she writes in this article it was the last moment when the celebrities needed magazines even more than magazines needed celebrities which meant the power dynamic was tilted away from the mostly young, often female fame seekers toward the men atop the masthead. And so it's like, while there were and still are women in journalism, like especially at this time, men were in charge and it was a man's game. So even when there were women working at these magazines, they kind of have to pander to these men, continue to like take women down a peg. And so because celebrities had absolutely no control of the narrative and tabloids were again at every single grocery store at every single newsstand everywhere you could possibly buy them they were there and people were buying them they were going like hotcakes you know the celebrities had absolutely no line of recourse they had no line of defense it was just us versus them and you either allow this to happen or you give them exclusives and then maybe you're a little bit safer but you still are going to be a target if the image of you comes out and they can make you that target because this is the thing it's like paparazzi are following these people around they're staking out their favorite spots they're staking out their homes images for these people were going for anything from 15,000 to like $150,000 a photo images still today like sometimes you buy image sets for like a ridiculous chunk of change paparazzi definitely aren't making the same that they were in the early 2000s but it still is these bidding wars because people are still interested they still want that access and information that they think that they're privy to because somebody is a public figure and the other thing that we see with tabloid culture i mean we talked about this in the spice girls episode right if it's like they were so huge because they were constantly in the news and so it's like to this point it says it was the moment when celebrities needed the magazines more than the magazines needed the celebrities so in order to stay relevant they had to like be in the news like that was the only way because they didn't have social media and so now that we have social media this dynamic has flipped a lot it's given power back to celebrities because now people have a direct line of access to that celebrity and they can choose to show off about their life what they want to which also invalidates paparazzi photos because it's like if kylie jenner is getting paparazzi at the beach 
but then she just like posts on her Instagram a picture of her in a bikini, media outlets can go take that off Instagram for free and they don't have to buy photos from a paparazzi. So in that way, it's given power back to the celebrities and it's let them like control their own narrative a little bit more. And it honestly, like looking back at this, it is really crazy because it seems like these things, like we're talking about the tabloids, like this was all like building up and building up and building up. And then we see Lindsay Lohan and then we see Britney and then we see Paris Hilton. It's like getting worse and worse and worse every second. And Lindsay's going into rehab. Britney's shaving her head. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And it feels like it's just building up. And then finally we have of social media and that changed everything and so I feel like it was this mounting pressure that something had to change like it couldn't keep going on like this because people were literally their mental health was going to the trash because of what the tabloids were doing to them and so also in this article we have another quote from Vanessa Gregoriadis who worked at Rolling Stone and she makes this good point about how these tabloids and these magazines were making money off of these girls going out and partying and discovering their sexuality discovering a lot about themselves which normal everyday girls who are turning into women are also doing but again like we're not following Betty down the street to the corner store you know like we're following Paris Hilton because Paris Hilton is an heiress to the Hilton hotel family, you know? And so what Vanessa says is that I also don't think we should strip all the agency away from these women who were also having a good time in a lot of ways. She's like, some of them were being abused. I don't want to say that they weren't, but there were also some women who were just having a lot of fun. And so this is the thing is it's like some of these women, yes, like as we talked about with Lindsay Lohan, like she had not a great upbringing with her family and there were issues there. Paris Hilton has now come out and spoken about her history with sexual abuse and just abuse in general. So a lot of them were self-medicating with party drugs or alcohol and they were going out and the paparazzi were waiting for them to fuck up because they knew that them fucking up was going to pay their house payments for like the next two months. And so it was just this horrible leash mentality really because while the celebrities needed these magazines, the paparazzis were still using these celebrities. Like, it's just so dirty. And it's like the level of who needs who, I feel like doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, you know, because you still have these absolute strangers essentially placing bets on who's going to fuck up that night and being like, ah, yes, this is going to pay for my family to go to Disney World. It's just so messy. It is really messy. It's like the chicken and the egg, what came first? And it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, they're both part of the cycle and to your point anyone in their like late teens early 20s wants to go out and have a good time and they're gonna do it it's just that they're the ones getting caught in the limelight with it and I think you know the argument on the tabloid side is that well we're just reporting what they're doing and it's like yes but in what light like you still have say over like are you shooting up their skirts you don't have to do that, you know? You could just take a picture of them getting out of the limo without shooting up their skirts, you know? It's one of those situations of like, yes, you're reporting on what they're doing, but you're still bringing this biased view to it. Yeah, and I think, again, it's just like, personally, we're too young to really fully understand what was going on in that time frame when all this was happening. So again, a lot of this is us looking back on things with not just 2021 goggles on, but also adult goggles on you know because we just have completely different mindsets about this because we've grown up while the world has been on fire like women have been making 
steps personally, like in just the idea of womanhood of like what life could possibly be. Should we be able to fix shit, you know? And so it's just interesting because there is so much intrigue into this culture of the late 90s, early 2000s right now and so much focus on it because we're realizing how cruel we were. And so in speaking of this, there was this really incredible article written by Micah Fraser Carroll for The Independent this past year called Nostalgia, Remorse, and Terrible Tabloids, Why We're All Suddenly Talking About the Naughties, which was such an interesting article really based around the fact of framing Britney Spears' documentary that the New York Times put out. So Micah wrote this article strongly based off of the fact that this came out. And the thing that really stuck out to Jenna and I was that the director of Framing Britney Spears, Samantha Stark, said in an interview that she thinks that the COVID-19 pandemic was like part of why this documentary got a green light. And so she said, quote, there is so little happening off the internet that we could film. And so we were looking for stories that could be based in archival footage. And so because of that, they essentially landed on Britney Spears by accident, was what it seems, because like that's all there was to do because they couldn't go out and film stuff. They couldn't go out and do these crazy documentaries like they normally would. And so now it's like something that Britney fans have been so passionate about for so long is getting this attention that it probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And so it's kind of similar to how the Black Lives Matter movement has been going on prior to George Floyd's death. But because we were all bored and at home, all of a sudden, a lot of people were kind of woken up to what the fuck is going on in the world. And so now all these people are caring about people or subjects or political movements that they never thought about before because it was so much easier to just be a privileged white person than it would be to pay attention to how other people's privileges are being taken away from them. Well, I think also, too, I mean, that's such a good point. And it's the fact that everything slowed down for a minute, right? Like there wasn't the constant headlines. There wasn't the constant like Instagram posts that we would normally have. And I think Free Britney really in this documentary, like really, really had like a lot of cultural impact because of this timing, because people weren't distracted with other things. Because it's like Free Britney was going on before this documentary. Yeah. But for the general public, did not know about it until this documentary. I didn't know about it until this documentary because it didn't affect me in my daily life. Yeah. The interesting thing of it all is that, like, this documentary specifically humanized Britney Spears for a lot of people whose whole lives aren't pop culture media, you know? And so for people who weren't Britney fans or weren't pop culture heads, they're finally realizing, like, oh, fuck, Britney's a person. There is yeah. more to this than just the tabloid father that we've been fed our whole lives. Yeah. But on top of that, the director, so Samantha Stark, even openly admits that, like, she essentially never really thought of Britney in any context other than Britney Spears, a famous woman. And so we have this quote from her here saying, when I started interviewing people with firsthand experience working with Britney, I realized she was a creative woman who was very in control of her career and business as a young person, a mother who was going through a custody battle, possibly experienced postpartum depression while essentially being stalked by dozens of men on a daily basis a performer who made millions of dollars jumping through fire in Las Vegas, but was deemed incapable of making basic decisions in her own best interest. There is a lot there to reframe. And like this to me, as somebody who has cared forever, it's just crazy to me that somebody whose livelihood is to be a film director and because of COVID, they couldn't do what they normally would do and then focus on somebody who like Free Britney has been written about in journalistic places 
prior to this. And so it's like something that, again, people care about and are interested in. And then this documentary filmmaker shows up and finally humanizes Britney for the first time. And it's just, it's it's so weird. Like, I'm thankful that she was open with the fact that she had never thought of Britney as a person before. Like, I'm being kind of harsh on her. But the fact that in doing this documentary, it was the first time that she realized like, oh shit, Britney was going through a lot. It just goes to show like how much the tabloids were not focusing on what possibly Britney could have been going through and how much there was a need for mental health discourse prior to the past like five years, you know, because there are so many women in the spotlight who were very clearly and openly suffering with mental health and just like their mental health decline was like so fucking obvious looking back. But even for some people at that time, it was obvious. And yet instead of it being like Britney's overworked and underappreciated, it's like Britney shaves her head and loses her mind. And Britney Spears has talked about how she shaved her head because her hair was the only thing she felt like she had control over. And it was like, her whole career was based off of her hair. And yet people were still just like, look at this crazy woman who's losing custody of her kids. And it's like, have a fucking heart. Like, I'm pretty sure like most people know somebody who has gone through this in real life. And the fact that you have absolutely no empathy towards these women just because you know it's going to pay your paycheck not to is so messy. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. I mean... So going back to what the director was saying here of like you being surprised this was her reaction was also this was most of America's reaction, right? Unless you were, you know, following this Britney story since day one, you probably didn't know about this. And it humanized Britney for most of America. And not just Britney, I think it helped contextualize some of these other people that we talk about a lot. Even if you were not actively buying the tabloids, that was still the information you were fed, you know? You still saw the headlines. You were around the discourse. You heard people talking about this. Like you knew it was going on whether or not you actually bought those tabloid magazines, whether or not you even flipped over the front cover because we all know the stories. And this is the thing is like it even gets put onto like the nightly news and stuff like that in certain cases, you know, because I remember like being a kid and like seeing those paparazzi photos of like Britney shaving her head and like the videos of her shaving her head and like crying and all this stuff. I remember that as a kid, but I didn't know anything else about what was going on and probably the same thing for a lot of america it's like nobody allowed britney to be a human nobody allowed britney to tell her story in that way so we were all being fed the same narrative whether or not we actively bought those publications you know yeah and the thing is that's like really stuck out to me is it's like i feel like while this definitely should be a reckoning for journalists i feel like this also should be an eye-opening moment for just women in general of realizing we were the target audience for a lot of these tabloids a lot of these things like the articles that they would have on the front page would be things that women would gravitate towards and find intrigue in you know and then for a lot of people as you're saying in the general public like these documentaries coming out by world-class respected publications are now all of a sudden being like oh shit that was really messed up and I feel like this should have just been a moment that should have been of immense like growth and understanding of like how women were treated turned into this moment where these idiots who were writing these trash articles like Perez Hilton who was literally making money off of selling shirts wishing death on Britney Spears at this time they're going on fucking news tours being like 
I shouldn't have done that. I regret what I did. And paparazzi are like putting out public apologies. All these people are doing all this nonsense that's just for them to feel better. It's like that thing where it's like sometimes telling the truth will hurt the person you're telling the truth to more than you living with the regret of doing something stupid, you know? And it's like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be honest with people, but sometimes when you're like, oh, I should tell them what I did or I should apologize for what I did, whatever the case is. It's like you're more so doing that for you to feel better than for them to feel better. And it doesn't really help anybody in the long run because people have already decided that you are enemy number one anyway, Perez Hilton or Piers Morgan or whomever. Like you're not going to be able to fix your whole entire identity and how people view you just by making one or two public apologies and trying to like make people remember you exist like essentially glomming on just the whole world realizing like we treated somebody really shitty and you being like oh crap I had something to do with that let me make this about me now it's so ridiculous yeah it exactly is making it about themselves but another side of this is that not everyone thinks Piers Morgan is a bad person or that Perez Hilton is a bad person so that's the thing of like we do but there's yeah. people out there who, who don't think that they have anything they should apologize for. But yeah. at the end of the day, I said this before, if there's no systemic change, their apology doesn't mean shit. Because what? Because what's going to happen then? Like, yeah. oh, we shouldn't have done that. Whoopsie. You know, it's like, well, what about Britney Spears and like the, the mental damage you did to her? This is why like we're going to get into lawsuits in a minute here. But like, I just wonder if there's any, any, any possible way that some of these celebrities could get into lawsuits with tabloids. Or with like the media claiming mental health reasons. Because a lot of these people went through so much shit, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is this is the thing is it's like, no, <laughs> they can't. And we'll go into that more because like there are laws in place to keep the news media functioning. And it's so messy in so many ways. But also in some cases, we'll go into this in a minute. But yeah, like in short, no, which is so fucked up. Like, we're not allowed to be like, oh, you caused me irreparable damage. And they're like, okay, but was I writing factual statements? And it's like, technically you were because I wasn't, I didn't have a voice. Like if Britney Spears was like, you guys ruined my whole career, whatever, whatever. The things that you can sue people for in regards to media as a public figure are so minute and so small that because she never was given the opportunity to be like, yeah, I'm suffering from postpartum depression or like my mental health is struggling or whatever, because she was never given the opportunity, there's no proof that what they were writing was in malice. And therefore, they can't do anything about it, which is just like so fucked up. But for like one positive out of all of this, even though we can hate on social media as much as we want to and talk about how Instagram causes people mental health anguish in its own ways and all these things, the rise of social media has given these celebrities some access to autonomy and some access to controlling the narrative that they never had before because usually when somebody would have like an exclusive photo where they're like like let's say somebody had a baby and they're stalking outside the home to try and capture a photo of this baby now instead this article explains it's like Jessica Simpson when she had a kid she posted about it on Twitter and so somebody who had already agreed with a magazine that they were going to sell an exclusive of this baby for around $30,000 
they now lose their exclusive because Jessica Simpson posted the exclusive herself. Or even you see like People Magazine even will, for like B-list celebrities or Bachelor Nation people, people will essentially send their own wedding photographer to photograph their wedding. So people get the exclusive of wedding photos. And so you have these people building up relationships with these magazines in order to like have control of the narrative, make sure that they can decide which wedding photos get out instead of paparazzi like sneaking around with a telephoto lens outside the wedding venue or like when Justin Bieber and Haley got married there were paparazzi photos of Haley Bieber like under a tent that they were walking around with so that nobody could get photos of her in the dress when she was walking around outside the wedding venue and so it's like stars are getting smarter they're being able to control the narrative and while they're not a hundred percent safe because we're going to make stories out of anything and like the second you leave your home you're a public figure you're going to be photographed you're going to have people hoping you trip up you're gonna whatever have people hacking into phones and selling nude photos as that also happened celebrities at least are able to have some sort of control. And with documentaries coming out about Britney Spears and freeing Britney, her conservatorship ended. She is no longer an imprisoned woman in her own home. She can do whatever she wants. She is finally allowed to be a woman a week before her 40th birthday, you know, which is crazy, insane. Like she had no control of her narrative for such a long time. And thankfully, we're now finally looking back on these things when a lot of people are kind of like, leave the past in the past. It's like, no, we need to revisit what we did and the way we treated these people so that maybe we stop repeating these things. But Mm -hmm. like, we still do see these things repeated because unfortunately, people our age are in control of the media. And some things, even though we've definitely have grown a lot and know what quote unquote, like what we shouldn't be posting or writing or talking about, there are some things that have felt so normal to discuss that we're still doing it. Like this one girl on TikTok had posted a video about how she was speculating about Olivia Rodrigo possibly getting a boob job. And Olivia Rodrigo is like 18 years old and she deleted the video because people were hating on her for it. But because we've grown up of that being something normal that people who talk about pop culture talk about, I'm sure she didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Because almost every single person who was our age being famous had articles like that written about them at some point, you know? And so it's speculation that we're used to seeing, we're used to happening. And so it's still a learning curve because there are some things that like we talk about with our friends and we don't judge each other for talking about. And there's other things that we talk about with our friends and we're kind of like, maybe we shouldn't be talking about this. But like boob jobs, like questioning about boob jobs or face work is still something that just seems normal because celebrities should be open about that stuff to not set weird norms for the rest of the world. But also it's not celebrities' jobs to set the norms for the rest of the world or like be good role models for everybody, you know? So it all comes full circle in so many layers. Like they're, it's truly wild. It really does. You just got meta right there with that celebrity (laughs) face job reference metaphor. Yeah. You know, you know me, I love to be meta about these situations because like, I don't know, we've talked a lot about it's not celebrities jobs to be role models, you know, but at the same time in the early 2000s, the media wasn't even giving these celebrities the opportunity to be role models, even if they wanted to, because every mistake was picked through and written about and they were just attacked and put on the front page of everything being like, 
Oh, Brittany being a slut again. And we have a prime example of that with a quote from the founder of TMZ. There's another great article in the New York Times by Jessica Benet in 2021 called Speaking of Brittany, what about all those other women? And just as a side note, we did just say this, right? Like the Britney Spears documentary made us think about how a lot of other women were treated too. So in this, she quotes the founder of TMZ, Harvey Levin, who said in 2006, Britney is gold. She is cracked to our readers. Her life is a complete trend wreck and I thank God for her every day. Those actual words were said. Somebody admitted that they were leeching off of somebody's life story for their own fortune. That is insane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, like this is a thing, and this is what I mean, of it's like, while there is no proof that these people are, like, going after them in a malicious way, like, literally Harvey Levin is saying with his own voice, like, she's a train wreck, we know she's gonna mess up, we're waiting for it to happen, and we're gonna make money off of it. The other crazy thing is that Jessica also talks to Monica Lewinsky over the phone and Monica Lewinsky says, we tend to forget the collective experience. We direct this kind of vitriol and misogyny towards one woman, but it actually reverberates to all women. We're all collateral damage, whether we're the object or not. And this goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning with women being sexualized in magazines of switch it out, replace it for any woman. You could have those emotions and those feelings and those way of viewing someone projected on to any and every woman. It's not just a Britney thing. Yeah, and at that time, again, because the mental health conversation was like not happening, even if they did feel like, oh, let me mention something, people would be like, oh, excuses, excuses. We know you have a drug problem. We know you have a yeah. drinking problem. We know you like to party, you little whore. Like <laughs> It was very much victim blaming the whole time. Yeah. And like we keep saying, like, they just keep going after them. And so you have these situations of like, there was even in this New York Times article, she calls back to a Newsweek article from 2007, which was like the height of all of this. And the whole this whole Newsweek article, which was written by Kathleen Devaney, which was called Girls Gone Bad, Celebs and Kids, is a whole article that like, we don't even have time to go into depth on. This could be a whole other episode just about the idea of a celebrity role model and like what that even means. But like the whole article, is saying how Britney and Paris Hilton, like people who are adults or at this point, that they're not being the correct role models for kids. And so kids are using words like sexy or dancing in oversexed ways during recess. But it's like a kid has a kid's grasp on what sexy means. Yeah. A kid has a kid's grasp on what sexy dancing is. These kids don't know that this is a sexualized thing. They don't understand that. But you're the one as an adult with a sexualized idea of these women and you're putting that onto your children and then you continue to buy the tabloids and you continue to like have E! News on in your house or whatever they're learning from. And it's just like, just it's just cycle of nobody ever really learning or understanding what's going on and the tablets continuing to make money off of your obsession with these women quote unquote fucking up in public. I mean, I think also until very, very, very recently, we only very recently started to understand what victim blaming was. And that was the mentality for so long. In a way, victim blaming is literal gaslighting. And that's kind of what these publications were doing of, you know, like we said, telling the story, but in a very specific light that's gaslighting everyone involved to believe that these women are bad. 
Yeah. And like, this is the thing. Again, it's like these layers where it's like, you're right, but you're also like, you're right and you're wrong all at once just because of like the legalities behind what these newspapers are allowed to do. And it's so messed up because it is gaslighting, essentially, because as somebody who has worked for these publications and has friends who have worked for these publications and has read about these publications, like ad nauseum, every single article that is not just posting like, oh, Kim Kardashian posted an Instagram of her and North. Like everything has to be legal. Every single one of these companies has huge legal teams. They read literally every article, but most articles that report on quote unquote news. So like, let's say we're in the newsroom and Britney Spears is seen shaving her head and we want to write about it. We have to send that off to the legal team for them to legal. Because that's why, like, in this podcast, even though we're writing about things that we believe are true or, like, have been proven otherwise, but, like, they haven't gone to court or they haven't been tried, you know? It's why we have to use words like alleged or, like, speculated or all these things. Because legally, if we just outright say, like, so-and-so did this when they haven't been held accountable by the court of law, we could get sued for libel and we could get sued for these things. And this is why... A lot of the times, like, we don't see lawsuits because basically, like, these publications, they have a ton of money and they're like, we have enough money and we have enough fear instilled in these celebrities for us to publish this and there not to be any recourse because we know that we have enough money that if they come to us, we'll just be like, here is money. Shut the fuck up. Leave us alone. So the thing with lawsuits and like the reason why there's so much protection for journalism is because of freedom of speech. Like because yeah. lawsuits really quickly, if there's not protection in place for journalists, it could really quickly get into silencing opinions. And so that's why these lawsuits are so hard to make and so hard to prove and take to court. But it's very bothersome that it's like, yes, journalists do have protection. These publications have protection, but they're wielding their power in a way that's negatively affecting people. And that's yeah. why it's sad and disappointing that there's no way to reality check them unless something like the Britney Spears documentary happens, where that was very much a wake up call for a lot of people who otherwise have not been called out in a very public, very wide reaching platform. Because I'm sure there's people who have tried to call them out, but no one was paying attention. And so once you have public outrage involved, then people start to get held accountable. Yeah. And there is this um, 1991 New York Times like archive article called this, How the Supermarket Tabloids Stay Out of Court. And they are using this veteran entertainment lawyer called Vincent Chifo as like an example for this. And basically they're saying that like when a celebrity asks about suing a newspaper, they'll like call him up and he'll be like, it's just the facts of life. There's a never ending battle between publications and famous people, but the famous people very rarely win. And so what Vincent says is that he tells celebrities that the tabloid will aggressively fight back, so the lawsuit will cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and will probably drag on for years. And he emphasizes that in preparing their defense, the tabloid's lawyers may be given legal permission to scrutinize the celebrity's personal life. So in going into a lawsuit, they'll have access to even more information about that celebrity, which then the tabloids will use to yep. their advantage. Yep. And so Vincent goes on to point out that by law, the standard of libel for public figures is high, making a case a very difficult to win because the celebrities have to prove that there is actual malice. And in doing so, they have to prove that the tabloid was not just negligent in their research, but rather that they knew that the item was false 
and nevertheless displayed a reckless disregard for the truth. And so like, there's nothing, there's literally nothing they can do. And it's so unhinged and crazy. Take Britney Spears as an example. Well, if we look at Lindsay Lohan as an example, they're going to be like, well, she's an addict. She did this to herself. And then if we look at Britney Spears as an example, they didn't do anything that they reported. They reported on Britney's life. They just did it in a negative light. You know, they did it in a way that sexualized her, that controlled her, that didn't let her be her own person. But that's not illegal. They didn't print anything that was libel. Yeah. And like in regard to this act of actual malice, like this is something that was established by the Supreme Court in 1964 in a decision called New York Times versus Sullivan. And it still remains good to this day. And so it's like you truly have to go out of your way to prove that it was lies. And like one of the few people who had success in this was actress Carol Burnett, who the Inquirer had basically written this article talking about how she was intoxicated when meeting the former Secretary of State Henry A. Kissinger. And she did not like this article and was like, this is a fucking lie. And she took on the court and she won because there were enough witnesses and people who would come to the stand for her to be like, you're lying that she won. But like, this isn't a common thing. And a lot of times when celebrities are mad, they solve the problem behind closed doors because it helps both the media publication to just pay them, but it also helps the celebrity because they know that like, if this gets taken to court, then there will be things that their legal team will get access to that they don't want them having access to. It's pretty crazy, man. It's kind of messed up a little bit. It's a little bit messed up, but. And so because of this one law and this one supreme court ruling this is why even as we're growing as a society in certain ways we're never going to see tabloid culture completely disappear the daily mail in touch us weekly people magazine like all of these things are always going to exist because of the human voyeurism that we all have inside of us and our lust for drama and like knowing about people that we have parasocial relationships And all of these topics that we've talked about ad nauseum in every podcast episode we've done, which was why we thought this was so important to talk about today, is it's like we can personally work to try and change things and change the narrative on how we talk about women and talk about public figures. But until that like inherent thirst for this is gone and journalists all have the same mindset of like articles will be just as good if we're not mean, things are never going to change. Yeah. Exactly. It's going back to people at the top and the system itself has to be willing and ready to change because these don't happen overnight. Change doesn't happen just because we realized that everyone was mean to Britney, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a whole mess, but we hope that this was an informative mess <laughs> to some degree. I mean, I think that this topic is so intriguing, so interesting, so like heartbreaking also at the same time. Yeah, I definitely learned a lot because... We've talked about tabloids here and there sprinkled throughout our episodes, but actually diving into the thick of it was very eye-opening. And like I said at the beginning, it it helps inform our discussions going forward of how social media and like the media currently has reacted to what happens with the tabloids. Yeah, and I think it'll be really interesting to see like how things move forward now that Britney's conservatorship was over and the fact that like that New York Times documentary and the Netflix documentary that came out afterwards have actually played a role in people's minds changing about how the media discusses celebrities that they enjoy. 
So, I mean, for you guys, do you partake in tabloid culture? Do you read Demois? Do you pay attention to these blind items and things that are becoming more popular now? Or is that something that you try to avoid and just are aware of because it's impossible to completely shield yourself from celebrity gossip, you know? We would love to hear from you about this topic because, as we said, it's been an underlying villain in all of the stories of every episode that we discuss. And really looking into it, I feel like it'll be really, really cool to hear your guys' thoughts on all of this. And so we can have those discussions over on social media. You can come hit us up on Instagram or Twitter. We are at Name3Songs. And as always, if you have any personal beef with anything Jenna and I said today, you can come talk to us personally. I am at Sarah underscore Fagan and Jenna is at Jenna underscore Million. So thanks for joining us this week on Name3Songs. Until next time, never let anyone make you feel bad about your favorite band. And remember, you're never too cool to think critically about the media you consume. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when each episode comes out and leave us a five-star review. They really help. If you want to find out more about any of the sources we referenced in this episode, you can visit name3songs.com.